It's good to see you here this morning. It's good to worship this morning and lift our voices and praise God. I don't know what your week was like, but what I'm seeing surrounding uh, our world and our city and our nation, and in many of you personally, it's, it's been a rough week. And I think it's appropriate before we get into the word that we go to a time of prayer. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we want to acknowledge that you are in control even when we feel scared or sad or confused. And this week has offered many, many occasions. In light of the shootings and deaths of Terrence Crutcher and Keith Scott, a pastor in Oklahoma has been contacted over and over again as people ask Where can I go to cry? And Lord, we come to you in mourning. We come to you with regard to the suffering in our nation and even the suffering in our city. Where so far this year, we've had an average of two murders per day, 14 per week, 60 a month, about 550 this year. And on top of that, just countless shootings. And Lord, we're also sad because of the death of a Northwestern student and a bike accident this past week, Chayan Chu. And that is really scary. That is really sad just thinking about we're starting life here, getting ready to go on a new adventure, and tragedy strikes. And we all bring our own personal suffering. Sometimes it makes us afraid, it makes us sad and confused. And Lord, you tell us to fear not. And we're going to keep looking to you this morning. With everything in us, we're going to believe by the power of your spirit to fear not. To fear not. Be with us this morning. Be with us closely as we get into your word. And believe your truth. In Christ's name, amen. In light of the suffering that has been compounding this week and keep gaining momentum, um, I've just cut my whole intro. And I've cut other parts of what I was going to say. You know, the the intro was more lighthearted, a little bit funny, but I'm just... I'm not in the mood to go there right now. I know we can scroll through our Facebook and Twitter feeds and we can have a bombing overseas and then the next thing we look at is something lighthearted and funny and silly and we just, we scroll, we move from one emotion to the other and I'm just not ready to do that this morning so I've just cut my whole intro and some other stuff in the sermon and so it's... It's not that I'm always a serious guy. I occasionally can laugh, (laughs) but I just am not, just can't transition this morning. So I'm going to jump right in, and I hope you can follow without the intro. This is what's going to happen. In the coming weeks, Jesus is going to speak some difficult words to you. He's going to speak words of confrontation. He's going to call some of you out because 
you don't love him like you're supposed to. In fact, your love has grown cold, and he's going to call you on it. He's going to confront some of you in your idolatry, and you're not going to like that. And he's going to confront some of you for your rampant sexual morality. And he's going to confront you over and over again as we move through the book of Revelation, especially as we look at chapters 2 and 3. And as you're being confronted, you're going to say, yo, 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 who is this Jesus confronting me? What gives him the authority to call me out the way he's calling me out? Who is this Jesus? But also in the coming weeks, he's going to offer you words of comfort. He's going to offer you forgiveness. He's going to offer you grace. He's going to offer you mercy, words of comfort. And at the same time, you should ask, so who is this Jesus trying to comfort me? Yeah, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus confronting me? Who is this Jesus offering to comfort me? Who is this Jesus? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we get to the confrontation, before we get to the comfort, we want to say, who is Jesus? Who is this, this God-man confronting and comforting? And in order to do that, we're going to turn back to the book of Revelation. We've been in the book of Revelation for a whole week. We're going to go through the whole book this next year. We find ourselves again in chapter 1. So go ahead and look it up in your Bible. If you can find it, look on someone next to you. But I'm going to read the passages we're going to look at today. Let's let's just go ahead and stand. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to go verse 9 to the end of the chapter. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You may be seated. 
let's set a little context here. Revelation was written by the Apostle John. He is in prison on the island of Patmos for his faith in Jesus. The church during John's time was under pressure and persecution. And the book was likely written between 81 to 96 AD while Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire. By this time, most of the apostles have been martyred and paganism ruled the day. The church was suffering under persecution and many were teetering in their faith. And as the believers were suffering what seems to be under the only rule, the Roman rule, John writes this book and offers a counter-reality and says, oh, no, no, no. There is another kingdom and there is another king. And what we're going to see this morning is Jesus is going to commission John to write this book to the seven churches. And it's going to be words of confrontation and words of comfort. And as we look at the passage this morning, and before we hit the words of confrontation and comfort over the next several weeks, we're going to continue to ask this question. Who is this Jesus? And as we shall see this morning, we're going to keep it really simple. This morning, Christ is going to be presented as both majestic and merciful. It's that simple. He'll be presented this morning as majestic and merciful. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to go verse by verse, and we'll start with the commissioning of John. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a little dinky island in the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles from Asia Minor and about 60 miles to the main church we're going to see next week in Ephesus. We see here that John was in prison there for proclaiming the truth of God's word and testifying to the gospel of Jesus. He's writing to fellow believers, but not as an outsider, but as a brother and partner. He knows what it's like to face tribulation, persecution, imprisonment, false teaching and the temptations to compromise. But it also says that he is their brother in a kingdom under the present reign of Jesus that one day come into full effect at his return. But I want you to notice also, right there in the middle, that he says, until that day, we're going to suffer, and the call is for patient endurance. Go ahead and underline it, highlight it, patient endurance. You'll find this patient endurance as a repeated refrain in the book of Revelation and in the Bible. And I must say that there has been nothing that has stood out to me more over the past three months than this concept of patient endurance. You will run across this phrase many times in the Bible as the call continues, patiently endure. So whether you're just jumping into to college, you will face times, I guarantee you, where you need to be patient and endure in your faith. For those of you about to launch out into life, you need to be patient and endure the temptations you're going to face. And for those of you who are in the grit of midlife, you don't see the beginning nor the end, you need to patiently endure. And for those of you in your latter years, the call is still 
to be patiently enduring. And the reason why it gets difficult is because as we see, this artwork here represents the book of Revelation, but things sometimes seem dim. And it seems like, what's the point? Things are hard. You don't see much light on the horizon, and all you see is problems. And as we progress through the book of Revelation, there is still light shining until Christ comes back, and it is much more, obviously, brighter. But until then, the call is for patient endurance. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It's the Lord's Day, which is a Sunday, and Christians typically gathered on the day Jesus rose from the dead. And we are told that John is in the Spirit, which conveys the idea that the Holy Spirit has taken over. Just like the prophet Ezekiel was captivated by the Spirit to receive visions, so John is in the Spirit and will soon receive divine revelation. The voice that John hears behind him is the voice of Jesus. And it's described as a loud voice like a trumpet. This is similar to Moses hearing the Lord's voice on Mount Sinai with a trumpet blast. Verse 11, Jesus says to him, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John is recorded what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches. These are actual churches that existed during this time. That would be on a, a route a letter would naturally travel. These are not the only churches in the area, but these are the seven that received the letter. These seven were to receive their letter and to read it about the condition of their church, but they were also to read the letters to the other churches, and the churches in the area were to read all the letters, and the churches throughout history are to read the letters, and even our church is to read the letters. Because as he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are all meant to hear and respond. Before I go any further, I'm going to do something I do occasionally. I do this about six times a year. I do something called a sermon timeout. You're familiar with timeouts, taking a break. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you two things during this sermon timeout. Number one, show of hands for those of you who are intimidated by the book of Revelation. As every hand goes up, all right. It's probably because of the symbols, the imagery. You feel like maybe you have to piece everything together. But don't be deterred. There's this guy named Vern Poitras. He said, Revelation is a picture book and not a puzzle book. Revelation is a picture book and not a puzzle book. The book is filled with elaborate pictures, not hidden and secret codes. If you are searching Revelation for hidden and secret codes, don't do that. Poitras even says that sometimes kids, I hope there's some kids in here, some kids can understand the book of Revelation better than adults who have studied it their whole lives. So if you're a kid in here, live it up. In fact, he says, 
reading the book of Revelation is like reading fantasy, but it is real. The book of Revelation is meant to be read. It's meant to be understood. There's not secret codes where we're supposed to be going, I now understand. No, read it. It's meant to tell us about what God is doing. We can understand what he's doing. We can understand where we're headed. Second thing I want to tell you, and this is what makes the book of Revelation a little bit more challenging, is that the verses that you'll find in Revelation There are so many Old Testament allusions. Old Testament allusions are all over the place. And we're about to hit so many of them in chapter 1. What I've done on Sunday morning, we we use this app called YouVersion. If you have a phone, I encourage you to download it. Go to your app store right now. Y-O-U version. And in the YouVersion app, you can search live events And I have put tons of Old Testament verses on there as we go through this that you can look up later because I want you to see the Old Testament illusions. In addition, when you get together with your ethos community, feel free to look up some of these Old Testament illusions and piece it together and talk about it. So don't be deterred reading the book of Revelation and understand it's rooted deeply in the Old Testament. Time in. Let's go. Let's come back now, and we're going to jump in into the majesty of Christ. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. John turns around to see the speaker of the voice, and he sees seven golden lampstands. These seven lampstands have a symbolic reference that is identified at the end of verse 20. Look at the end of verse 20. Do you see it there? And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Why would a lampstand represent a church? Well, from the Old Testament, golden lampstands will be found in the temple. Perhaps you've seen a a Jewish menorah and the lampstands with seven lamps on it. And these are intended to give light which would be an accurate picture of what the church is supposed to do. The church is to be a light to the world of God's truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and good deeds. So it's appropriate that the churches are called lampstands. Verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Once again, the imagery is astounding. Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands, and he is described as one like a son of man. We could spend the next hour or two talking about this. I won't, but I have to talk briefly about it. The title Son of Man comes from, you know what book that's mainly referring to? It's referring to the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, and what we'll find as it's talking of there, the fulfillment is in Jesus. Here's the story. Daniel has a night vision and a dream during the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. He sees four beasts coming up out of the sea representing world powers arrayed against God. He also sees God on his throne in all of his glory as the Ancient of Days. 
Then Daniel sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds, and God gives him an everlasting kingdom as he is served by the nations of the world. And we are told from what we see here is that Jesus fulfills this vision as he is the exalted son of man now and in full effect at his return. What we're going to see is eight characteristics of Jesus, the Son of Man. The images are likely, stay with me, the images are likely metaphorical and not literally what Christ looks like. So when you get to heaven, don't think, when I see Jesus, he's going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. Dennis Johnson says, it's not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. Did you catch that? The descriptions here are not what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. Don't get bogged down with all the details, but keep the overall picture in mind. We're going to see the majesty of Christ as the exalted king and sovereign judge. So let's go through these eight descriptions of what Jesus is like. The first one is we can see that he is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is a description of likely a priest or kingly garments. Either image would fit because Christ is the priest who makes atonement for his people, but he's also the king who reigns and rules over his people. Look at the second image. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. Many of these images can be found in the Old Testament as a reference to God the Father, but now they are being applied to Jesus. Here, this white hair. He's wise. He has insight. He has direction for your life. The third descriptor says that he has flaming eyes. Verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire, these blazing eyes of the judge that can see the hearts of men and women all the way down to your secret thoughts and intentions. His feet of burnished bronze, which symbolizes his strength and his glory and his holiness. The fifth is this roaring voice, his voice like the roar of many waters, display of his authority and might. And it says that in his right hand, he held seven stars. What are the seven stars? Jump down to verse 20 for an interpretation. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. If you have a study Bible or ever read a commentary, you may see that these angels may be interpreted as messengers, and many refer to these messengers as the pastors of these seven churches. But it's more likely that it's talking about angels. And I don't quite understand what this means. Some think that each church has its own guardian angel, and as Jesus is addressing the church on earth, so he's addressing the angel in heaven. I don't quite understand that, but I think that's where the imagery is going. The seventh thing you can notice, it says that he has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, verse 16, which is the imagery of judgment that can be found in the Bible of his judgments proceeding from his mouth. And you notice in verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is glory on display. 
Now put all the images together, and you have the majesty of Christ. You have Christ in all his glory. You have the sovereign judge. You have the ruling king. This is the Jesus that is speaking words of confrontation and comfort to the church and words of confrontation and comfort to you. Are you ready to listen to him speaking to your life? This past week, I was in Minneapolis with a lot of leaders of the broader church movement that we are part of. And one of the reasons why we were gathering in Minneapolis was to talk about a huge problem in our movement. And that is pastors addicted to pornography. And one of the issues that we talked about is the pastors go into hiding. They don't want to tell anybody. They isolate themselves. And so we had a pastor and his wife get up there, and the pastor started off by saying, I'm a sex addict. And they talked about how the journey of he and his wife over the years have found freedom for him through a variety of counseling and mentoring and encouragement. But the point is this. If you're thinking about Jesus who confronts you and comforts you, if you're just saying, we need Jesus to confront you in your pornography addiction, if we just stay there, we're going to crush you and condemn you. But on the flip side, if you say, you know what? That's fine. It's no big deal. A lot of people do it. Most people do it. No big deal. Let's just give you some comfort of Jesus. We'll let sin slide without repentance. No big deal. But what we're trying to do is, is hold both and say, no, this is, this is a serious deal. Christ calls us to holiness, and he is confronting us, while at the same time there is freedom and forgiveness to those who repent. And I, I know there are many people here that are steeped in pornography. Many of you who may even be married. And the worst thing you can do is Hide. Satan wants you to hide, to not tell anyone. You've got to understand, the environment and the ethos of our church is that we can talk about stuff. You can go to your ethos, and when we sometimes break up men and women, you can tell people what's going on. If you're married, you don't have to hide. I know some of you have not told anybody, and this is a serious problem in your marriage. No one knows. For those of you who are single, it may be a serious problem. No one knows. And when we get together in our ethos communities, we confront one another, but we do it with mercy, comfort. We have Christ who is majestic and holy as a judge, but we also have Christ who is merciful to those who repent. Let's move on to the mercy of Christ. Let's go on. Let's keep going. Move on to the mercy of Christ. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is good, right? Jesus is the first and the last. This means he's eternal. And the Son of God has existed for eternity, and he's going to live forevermore. I, I love talking to my kids. Their minds get so blown when we talk about the eternality of God, that he's existed forever. They just get their minds blown that he was never created. He existed forever, and he's going to exist for eternity. But it should also blow your mind that Jesus is also reigning now. He is alive 
now. He is the living one now. And he is the one with the keys of death and Hades. That would be the grave. He is the one who conquered death through his crucifixion on the cross, his burial and resurrection. And he's the one who has access to eternal life. And he also has, he's the one who keeps people out of eternal life. Those who repent and put their faith in Christ have access to eternal life through his finished work on the cross and resurrection. But notice here, the very first words that Jesus says are the words, fear not. Did you see that? Fear not. Now, it could be John just sees Jesus in all his glory and he hits the dust. And that's probably part of it. But you've got to understand, this is a church who's very much afraid. The persecution and the troubles that are hitting them. And the, word, the words are, fear not. I told you last fall, about a year ago, I was meeting with this guy. And I was sharing with him some of my, my life and my issues. And as I was talking to him, he said to me, I hear a lot of fear. Then he cut me to the heart and he said this. When was the last time you were not afraid? Think back on your life. When was the last time you were not afraid? The most repeated command often in the Bible, right? It's fear not. That we have Jesus who is reigning, involved in our life, conquered death, and Satan, and sin. And the word to you is fear not. Let's go ahead and finish it up. Verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Uh, I think many books have been written on just this verse. (laughs) If you ever read commentaries, long explanations. I'm just going to go with what most scholars see, what this is, is, is just the vision broken down into three time frames with some overlap. When he says, right therefore, the things that you have seen, I think what that means, the things you have seen are the visions of chapter one. So far, he's seen these visions of chapter one. And then when he says, right therefore, the things that you've seen, and then when it says, those that are, refer to the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then when it says, those that are to take place after this, I think what that's referring to are the events in chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22. And what we have here is Jesus in control, sovereign over history. What has already happened, what is about to happen, and what will happen in the future. We're back to what we talked about last week, right? We all agree. Jesus is sovereign in control of the past, right? Everybody, you're like, yep, God is control, sovereign over my past life, past history. And we all agree and believe that Jesus is in control of the future. He's coming back. We're like, yep, we agree. The book of Revelation, he's sovereign. Yes, we get that. And then I ask you the question, okay, what about your present life? (laughs) Is Jesus and sovereign and control over your present? Do you agree? Uh, Not so much. Right? Like, we'll give them the past. Yeah, we see it in the Bible. You're in control. And we'll give them the future. Yeah, we see that. But it seems as if your present life somehow 
Jesus does not have that one figured out. That's what we emotionally feel. And yet we have the exalted, majestic Son of Man and the mercy in his work on the cross and resurrection working out his good plan for your life. That's the word. And we have Jesus in all of his majesty and his mercy speaking into your life words of confrontation and also words of comfort. And I will never forget the very first time I experienced and heard through his word Jesus' confrontation and comfort in my own life. And it happened on a porch. In fact, I'm going to rename that porch. (laughs) The porch of confrontation and comfort. The scene was, I was 19. I was a freshman in college. I, I, I moved from Dallas to Russellville, Arkansas to go to Arkansas Tech University. No one has a clue what that's all about, right? So I went there to play tennis for them. And while I was there, uh, a camp came along and did some interview for some summer counselors. It was a Christian camp out of Missouri called Canacook. So they were trying to find some counselors to work their sports camp. So during the interview, uh, I was uh, asked the question. I was not a Christian by then, by the way, not a Christian at all. So the first, uh, one of the first questions they asked me is, have you ever had premarital sex? I said, no, totally lied. Second question, what book of the Bible are you currently studying? And I said, Paul. I don't know what I'm doing. I, there's, there's no book of Paul. And, they, and, they, and then they followed up. They said, what part of Paul? And I said, all of it. <laughs> and no joke, I remember going home looking in my Bible for the book of Paul. It was not there. Somehow, they hired me as an unbeliever. They hired me as an unbeliever to help lead kids to Christ. And disciple, disciple kids in Christ. So I show up at this camp, and I, am, I'm a, I fit in nowhere. I'm a total outsider. I don't know the lingo. I don't know what they're talking about. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm scared to death. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. And one night, I heard the gospel, which confronted me, confronted me in my sin, and, and cut me deeply. God's grace. And I remember hearing the gospel and, and just solely struck about the life I've been living apart from, from Christ. And I was convicted. So I ran out of that meeting and I, I went to this porch and, uh, of this cabin totally in the dark. And I was just crying and sobbing. And, and I repented of my sins and put my faith in Jesus. And ever since then, Jesus continues to confront me and to comfort me. He confronts me in his majesty and his mercy, and he he comforts me in his majesty and his mercy. And he's doing that 
to you as well. Even if you're not a believer right now, Jesus is confronting you in your sin. And yet he's still saying, come on, come to me, come to me. I'll forgive you. I'll give you grace. I'll give you mercy. For those of you who are believers, he continues to confront you. And I know some of you have been resisting his confrontation recently. You know sitting here right now that you're into something, whatever that is, that you say, no, no, Jesus, not right now. I don't want to deal with that now. I don't, I just started school this week. I don't want to deal with that. I'm, I just had a baby. I don't want to deal with that. I, I'm, I'm, I've been married for 25, 30, 40 years. I don't want to deal with that. I can't deal with that now. And it's almost like, Jesus, let's just deal with that later. For those of you who are believers, if Jesus is confronting you right now, he's confronting you in love and mercy and grace and the way that you are living or maybe have been living, there is so much more freedom that is offered to you. Will you respond to this Jesus? Maybe a Jesus you've known for many years. Will you respond to Jesus? who is the majestic judge, who disciplines his people, but only for a season, so they experience his grace and mercy. Will you respond to this Christ? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. And he has completed the work on the cross, burial, resurrection, exaltation. And thank you that he's coming back soon. But until then, Lord, help us to patiently endure. And Lord, for, the, for, for those in here who have kind of bailed out on the patient endurance and have turned to idols or other things to make them feel better that are not right, Show them that there can be real freedom here this morning. There can be real breakthroughs. Show them they need forgiveness and grace and show them they cannot do this alone. I pray for those in here who are hiding. You see, Jesus. You see with your blazing eyes. May we hide no more. May we come out of the darkness into the light and find that the one with blazing eyes is the one who also has holes in his hands. And may we find mercy. And may we find grace. In Christ's name, amen.